Hi, Nancy. Hey, Shane. Uh, so I hear, I hear, I know this, that you are moving soon. Like yes, very soon. we're moving. I mean, literally six minute walk away, but we are moving. So you got to pick up, pack up all your stuff regardless how yeah. far you're moving. How's that going? Um, it's going well. It's going well. We're going through all the boxes, getting rid of lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. One of the things we uncovered um, in the back of our closet was our um, emergency kit, which we do oh, have. Oh, okay. You know, What's but in that? all the food is expired. <laughs> well, I thought the whole purpose was that it doesn't like... <laughs> How old is this kid? That's what I'm saying. It's like four years old. So like the cans only are good for two years, whatever, right? Like that's some poor prepping. Yeah, I know. So we, but we found that that we're switching out the cans. That's good. Yeah, but um, yeah. What about you? Are you ready for an emergency? Um, I mean, I so for the longest time I had a go bag in my car. Oh, that's Uh, smart. Yeah, yeah, but it it brought up some interesting conversations because like when I started dating, people were like, "Why do you have a go bag?" Like. Is it to run away from, like, is it for staying overnight or, like, to run away from something or another? Like, no, I'm just prepared. I'm just a Boy Scout. And then that didn't really help either. So, I'm, it's no longer, we got a new car and I just haven't replaced it yet. I'm trying to figure out, like, how to bring that conversation up. Like, I want to put a go bag in the car. Like, to get away from what, Jane? What are you writing about? Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in a manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompey. And this is Third Pod from the Sun, Centennial Edition. Well, I mean, it's a good thing I never had to use this emergency box, to and be honest. hopefully yeah. you never will. No, hopefully, but it's good to have it. But, I mean, we're talking about this because there are, you know, serious emergencies that happen and you got to be prepared yeah there's some some major disasters out there and so uh we want to bring in our producers liza lester and lauren lapuma hi folks hey hi guys uh and yeah what what uh what do you got for us today well lauren and i went out to the cascade volcano observatory to talk with john ewart who's a volcanologist there and he's been there since 1980 which was right after mount st helens erupted in washington state do you guys remember that i I don't because i was like two i don't because i wasn't alive neither was i Wait, but you're from washington state i'm from there and my parents (laughs) definitely remember it i was very very small um but it was really really impressive to people who were nearby ashfall fell all over the state um, but luckily, not too many people were killed in that incident. It was kind of a lucky day in that way because um, they maybe weren't all actually all that prepared. Mm. Yeah. So why? So they were lucky because it wasn't so bad. Is that because they? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the in the eruption, I think in many ways was a lot bigger than they expected. Right. They did not expect it to be as large as it was. Um, but. Fortunately, it happened on a Sunday morning. Mm. Um, Evacuation was still in effect, although there were a lot of residents that were really eager to get into their lodges and go out there and do some hunting and just didn't want the government telling them that they couldn't be there. It didn't look like anything was happening. Um, But then something really big did happen. Um, And there were um, over 50 people killed that were within Mm. the the range Mm -hmm, of the volcano. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it could have been a lot worse. So what happened after that? So after that, volcanologists started thinking... Maybe they should have a plan, maybe a program in place that would have people prepared to go in when volcanoes started rumbling a little bit and check out the situation and advise local people on what they might want to do and when they might really want to bug out. That makes sense. So John was like a part of this. And he was a part of that. He was one of the founding members of this volcano um, disaster response team that formed in the 80s. 
And so he told us about, you know, some of that development and some of the first times that that got tested in the field. And he was there. My name is John Ewart, and I'm a geologist, volcanologist here at the Cascades Volcano Observatory. I've worked with the USGS at CVO since the very end of 1980, and uh so I've had kind of a full career of active volcanism um, from the end of 1980 when I started at Mount St. Helens through today. So we're pretty close to Mount St. Helens here in Vancouver, Washington. Yeah, we're, um, we're about uh, an hour and a half drive from here to uh, what's called Johnston Ridge now, named for David Johnston, who was the USGS volcanologist who uh, died on May 18th. 1980 in the uh, cataclysmic eruption. So uh, we're near to Mount St. Helens, we're near to Mount Hood, we're near to Mount Adams, uh, we're near to Mount Rainier. We have many volcanoes within a pretty easy day's drive and they're all wonderful places to go and uh, recreate, uh, hiking, um, bird watching, whatever you care to do in the outdoors. And which of these volcanoes are active volcanoes? You know, as, as volcanologists, um, we would consider virtually all of the Cascades as active volcanoes. They're, they're active but not erupting. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that uh, many of them sit with uh, still semi-molten magma at some depth below them. They produce earthquakes. They release gas. There are thermal areas uh, near the summits of, of most of these. So they're, uh, they're functioning volcanic systems. They just happen to not be erupting today. A lot of people in 1980 and even today don't really have an appreciation that the, the iconic snow and ice-covered volcanoes that, that are the uh, landmarks, the, the icons of our Pacific Northwest states here are, in fact, active volcanoes. St. Helens waking up in 1980 uh, really brought it home, certainly to the people who were here at the time, that the volcanoes that they see on the horizon when it's when it's clear here can be quite impressive forces of nature. I kind of have the impression that we're a little bit lucky that St. Helens didn't kill more people, that people were not within the park at the time it erupted, although there was some warning and there was a lot of public pressure, it sounds like, to, to get back into the the park and visit people's cabins and yeah. recreate. Yeah, it is fortuitous that the the eruption occurred early on a Sunday morning. Okay, so what that meant was that uh, loggers were not in the woods uh, felling trees. Uh, Warehouser has a rather large tree plantation just to the west of Mount St. Helens. Uh, they were mainly not working that day, and uh, the area. Uh, around the volcano uh, had been closed to access. There was a, a group of uh, uh, homeowners, people who owned cabins at, uh, at the Spirit Lake area that were supposed to convoy in later uh, on that day, on May 18th, and the eruption happened beforehand. So yes, the, the death toll of uh, 57 people is, is big, is tragic in and of itself, but could have been much worse. So an element of, of luck there. But the volcano had been active for two months. Uh, it reawakened in the middle of March. We had about, well, from about March 20th to May 18th, so about two months of, uh, of sort of 
the volcano giving us notice that it was <laughs> probably going to erupt. Rumbling, swelling, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of, you know, plans did the USGS or other government organizations have in place at that time to respond to an imminent eruption? Um, I'd say very little. I wasn't part of that that run up in the late 70s up to the 1980 eruption. But, you know, looking back, it was, uh, I mean, this was the first thing to happen in the Cascades since the uh, eruption of Lassen Peak in 19. 19- 15 uh, time frame. So uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, widespread knowledge or preparation. Um, I think people had, had seen the hazard map. Some folks in uh, at the state and local level had been briefed on it, but it, it was one of those things where, you know, I would imagine, you know, you get the briefing and then it goes up on the shelf and... Uh, I think how likely is that volcano up there covered in snow and glaciers and right. trees is going to erupt or, you know, it, but this must have kind of lit a fire under folks if they're thinking, well, what if something like Mount Rainier erupted? How many people would be in the path of this volcano? Yeah. Um, well, St. Helens was, was really a, a watershed event in science. Um, it kind of awakened a lot of curiosity and interest in in the scientific communities in the academic community uh, about explosive volcanism so was it helens that kind of spurred the idea that we needed a, a disaster response program or was there were there events after that that, that yeah that? um at, at saint helens you know it was a um pretty much a, an ad hoc sort of response it's not like there was uh, a lot of monitoring equipment on the shelf um, to, to put out on a volcano. The uh, Pacific Northwest Seismic Network based at University of Washington had uh, put in one seismic station near uh, Mount St. Helens a few years previous. Um, but even that, you know, in 1980, the so-called network was really quite sparse. Remember, remember the time before the internet. I know, it's hard to imagine, <laughs> but it did exist. Yeah, but it's hard to think about prepping for a disaster like this without cell phones and mm-hmm. the internet. And yeah. I know, it's now, I mean, everyone jumps on Twitter, you jump right on the internet, you jump on your phone. I mean, yeah, I you mean, it just mm-hmm. how, uh, it is crazy to, yeah. to think about. I mean, we all just forget what it was like to have to, you know, get in touch with people. Right. And I guess and they you had- must have been glued to your TV. Right? Yeah. Watching yeah. The yeah. 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 The radio. radio. They had satellites now that can show us what's happening all over the world, but also just libraries where you can search them at a moment's notice and find exactly what you want. Exactly. 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 And it's crazy to think like there was no real system set up in some of these cases for like, you know, you think about all the things we have, like we go through here at AGU, like planning for all these disasters. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's fire drills and stuff. But, you know, you know, all the disaster planning like that they now have in a lot of these places that, you know, really wasn't a thing. Yeah. So you're like, who's in charge or who can tell the people in charge what they should do and so you know around this time volcanologists were thinking maybe we should have something organized ready to go or even just to get equipment into the field because we didn't have worldwide monitoring Mm -hmm. of everything at that time Um, and so they were all kind of discussing it and it was was kind of slowly coalescing around this time in the early 1980s we used mount st helens as a laboratory and there were 
some folks who th- who thought, well, you know, maybe we should, as as uh, volcanologists, as USGS, we should be able to respond in a little bit more systematic, planned out manner. It's like Saint, a rapid deployment team. Yeah. So St. Helens erupted in 1980, and it was a, a tremendous kind of all-out effort just to get a few instruments onto the volcano to gather the data that we needed to um, try to make a forecast and understand what, what the volcano was doing. And it, it, it's a lot like building the boat and rowing it at the same time. Um, if, you're, if you're having to deploy instruments and then you're trying to get the data back to where it can be analyzed, you're doing the analysis, and then you're having to present that almost in, in real time uh, out to authorities and and the public. So, was the public doubtful, or did were they? I mean, it must have been fascinating to the public as well to think of a volcano. Yeah, um, I think science in general had still had a um, was was better appreciated by the general public in in 1980 perhaps than it is now. Um, so they just they trusted you. When you said this a little is bit, happen. a little bit more, but volcanoes are volcanoes are really difficult to to deal with. I mean, on the one hand, it's great that as a natural hazard, they they wake up and they tell you that there's the the possibility that they're going to produce an eruption. On the other hand, there's also great uncertainty. I mean, any number of times over my career, you know, volcanoes have have looked like they're going to, you know, wake up and go to eruption, and then they stop short. It's like they, you know, they run out of gas, literally, or there just wasn't <laughs> enough magma to, to get to the surface. So you're always, you know, it's great. You know where the volcano is. You know where the hazard's going to be. And the volcano's giving you signs that it's restless, but it's never going to guarantee you that it's going to erupt or how big it's going to be or what character the eruption's going to have. So we're always dealing with uncertainty. And so volcanologists kind of get a, a, a bad rap, I think, in the, in the public because they're you know, we're not able to say deterministically uh, there will be an eruption, you know, in the next month or next six months or next year. Uh, and so that upsets people, I think, uh, because yeah. sometimes it works. Volcanoes behave well and we can make a forecast that is actionable and is reasonably accurate. But then other times not. So you have the boy who cried wolf problem that exactly. Yeah. And so. It, it can be difficult to establish credibility and then maintain it. What we're trying to assess is happening miles below the Earth's surface. So all we have is inferential information, the earthquakes that are being produced, the gases that are being released, maybe how the ground is moving in response to changes that are happening deep within the crust. So we're, we're hampered in that, you know, we, we can't get a sample of the magma before it erupts, so we don't know what, what the composition is. We don't know how much gas is in it. There's a lot that we don't know. And, and so we have to discuss with authorities and with the public all the different possibilities and all the uncertainties. And so it, it quickly becomes a, a discussion of probabilities. So the one thing that we could do to help that challenging situation is be ready to respond with with instrumentation and people who are familiar with how an explosive type volcano like Mount St. Helens might develop toward eruption. 
So this was being discussed um, within the USGS in the early 80s. There was, it was also the subject of uh, a fair bit of international discussion. Lots of things were being discussed and, you know, a lot of talk over a period of years. Then we get to 1985 and Nevada del Ruiz volcano in Colombia becomes active. That's a, an entirely separate tragic tale, which uh, reaches a crescendo on November 13th, 1985, when Nevada del Ruiz erupts uh, a little after nine at night. A small eruption, a hundred times smaller than the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980. But it was an eruption on, a, on an ice-covered volcano that's about 17,000 feet high. And there were pyroclastic density currents, PDCs, that melted uh, lots of snow and ice at the summit. And the water that was created in that eruption ran downhill, and there's 4,000 meters, you know, 14, 15,000 feet of relief. Sudden water release at the summit picked up the debris on its way down the volcano yes, and turned into very fast-moving lahars, volcanic debris flows moving it at 40 or 50 miles an hour. But it is an enormous mud flow full of debris. An enormous and mud flow, and, and the net result was that within two and a half hours, there were about 25,000 people dead. So this was a tremendous tragedy for, uh, for Colombia, for the people that lived in the city of Armero and the city of Chinchinan and other surrounding areas. And it was, it was that event that I think finally provided the needed final impetus to get a volcano response team together. You know, it was a good business case, basically. Wow. Um, you know, the American uh, taxpayer is spending, you know, millions and millions of dollars coming in after the fact on a volcanic disaster. We can put a fraction of that forward. And 25, maybe 25,000 people don't die. And maybe they don't because, yeah. you know, maybe we can get instruments on the volcano. Had there been volcanologists down at, in Columbia before the eruption that were you know, looking at it or trying to talk to locals ab about the potential risk? Yes, there were, there were people going there. Uh, also, uh, in all of these situations, there's always a social political context. Mm -hmm. um, there was a civil war ongoing in Colombia and towards September, I believe, or October, the M-19 guerrilla group had taken over the Supreme Court in Bogota and were, was holding the court hostage. At the same time, the volcano was reawakening, and understandably, there was more focus on, on sort of the civil situation than there was on, on some volcano that was brewing, um, you know, the next province or two over. So um, with that, civil situation. Um, USGS wasn't permitted to have people on the ground. Um, it was complicated. Uh, we didn't have instrumentation that we could send. You know, the, we needed to have a seismic network at, at Ruiz. There were no instruments that could be spared uh, because they're basically all committed to uh, earthquake monitoring in, in the U.S. and there just wasn't the funding available to be uh, donating um, scientific instrumentation to another country like that. So lots of things conspired to 
mean that there was no organized response to to Ruiz and uh, and ultimately the the, the deaths of, of the 25,000 or more people, uh, you know, really is the result of communication failures. Was uh, it hard within the, the geological community? Did you go to meetings at that time and people were talking about it and feeling like this is a responsibility that we need to take on? Or yeah. Yeah. I think the, I think, you know, coming so soon after, uh, after St. Helens, after the eruption of El Chichon in Mexico in 1982, where more than 2,000 people also died, um, there was a lot of <laughs> uh, movement towards, you know, we, we, the volcanological community, need to do better. So as a result of, of the, uh, the Ruiz tragedy, we started the Volcano Disaster Assistance Program with USAID, OFDA, and uh, IAVSI, the International Association of Volcanology and Chemistry of the Earth's Interior, which is the International Professional Association for Volcanology, decided that we needed to have uh, better educational materials. And so they provided some funding for Maurice and Katia Kraft, a French volcanology videography couple to work with the USGS to produce a video called Understanding Volcano Hazards. And what they did was take examples from around the world of this is what a lahar looks like. These are the effects of a lahar. This is what a pyroclastic density current or ash flow or pyroclastic flow, lots of words for the same phenomena, looks like. And this is what happens to your people and things and property if they're in the way of a PDC. So it was examples that people could, could look at on a screen. And that was, that was developed. And uh, we actually used the, the beta version of that video in 1991 to great effect at Pinatubo in the Philippines. Okay, I need some vocabulary. What are pyroclastic density flows and lahars? Right, so pyroclastic density flows, or PDCs as he sometimes calls them, are this mix of lava chunks, pumice, ash, volcanic gas, and they are flowing down the side of the mountain almost like like water, um, but thick. And they follow the terrain, and they're accompanied by this big cloud of ash over the top of them, and they are hot, very hot. They can be between 200 and 700 degrees Celsius. Um, so, yeah, you don't want to be in the path of that, and especially because you can't outrun it. Um, their average speed is 100 kilometers per hour. That's faster maybe even than you can drive away, and they might be as fast as 700 kilometers per hour. So you need to get out of the path of this before they start, right? Um, and they start fires. They melt glaciers. They pretty much obliterate everything in their path. Uh, Lauren and I went up to Mount St. Helens with yeah. these guys to see, you know, the effect of that 40 years on. And it, there are parts that still look like a moonscape in the oh. wake of these pyroclastic you know, it's, it's wild. I went, I was there hiking like this past like a few months ago. You know, I talked about because you're from the area and I just looking around like, what the heck? Like how? I mean, I know how it happened, but I I wish people could like see our faces as you're describing this because we're just like, oh, my God. Yeah, it was absolutely insane beyond anything I expected ever. Yeah. But 
Yeah, so actually in Lahar, so like Liza mentioned, they can these pyroclastic density flows can melt glaciers. So if there's a volcano that's really tall, that has a lot of glaciers or ice or snow on it, all that will melt with this hot ash coming down. That generates a lahar, which is basically a volcanic mudslide. But it can you know, have other stuff in it, too. If there's other stuff that flows through concrete, trees, boulders, things like that. Again, moving really fast. Um, but you just w- don't want to be there. You can't get out of its way. You just need to not be there in the first place. So the point, the point of what the volcanologists back then in the 80s were doing, they were trying to teach people exactly this. Like, this is bad. You need to get the heck out of the way right exactly so they had multiple problems like first figuring out what the volcano is going to do so you can advise people and then convincing people that they're going to need to leave pick up a whole city and move Um, and so that got first put to the test at this volcano called Pinatubo which is in the Philippines and it was kind of a surprise because people didn't really know a volcano was there Um, it kind of didn't have that classic cone-shaped look that mm. things like Mount Rainier might have. Um, it kind of looked like a peak on a ridgeline covered in jungle in the Philippines. It hadn't erupted for 600 years. The local people didn't really have a local memory of it. The local indigenous people didn't have an oral tradition about avoiding this volcano. And so they had this big lift to do to, to persuade people that there could be a problem, although that was helped by seeing you know steam and ash coming up into the air. <laughs> And then to throw another ring into it, it was right next to Clark Air Base, which at the time was the largest U.S. military installation outside of the U.S., um, you know, legacy of our wars there. So when Fivolks, as you'll hear him say a bunch of times, the Philippine Institute of Volcanology and Seismology called, they were kind of going in cold. VDAP, the Volcano Disaster Assistance Program, started in August 1986. And between 1986 and 1991, we had done some initial uh, kind of training and infrastructure building missions in places like Guatemala and Costa Rica and Ecuador, Colombia, of course. And we had uh, responded with our uh, Colombian counterparts to the reactivation of Galeras Volcano in southern Colombia in 1989 and 90. And then uh, in 1991, I think it was a Friday afternoon because these sorts of news items always seem to come at us on Friday afternoons. <laughs> uh, we got a call from from Chris Newhall, uh, who was with the USGS, our volcano program at the time, and he reported that on April 2nd, there had been an explosion at uh, a place called Pinatubo. And at the time, because there was no World Wide Web, Internet, Google. First thing we did was, right, let's go to the Smithsonian Catalog of Active Volcanoes of the World, which had been published in the first edition in 1981. We'll look it up. Wasn't there. <laughs> That's because it wasn't recognized as a volcano active in Holocene time until 1983. Uh, there was very little that you could find about Mount Pinatubo. And so FIVOLCS, the Philippine Institute of Volcanology and Seismology, sent a a quick response team out, and they uh, saw what had happened. They put a a portable seismometer down on the northwest side, and they realized that, yeah, there were many, many earthquakes that were happening. And so they also had sort of a rudimentary understanding that it, it was a volcano. There were large deposits of ash and pumice 
all around the volcano. And in fact, these were being mined to produce uh, stonewashed jeans. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of the ways, so uh, I'm, I'm sorry, this is, I'm going to try to be linear here. We but have to digress and talk about this we have for to, a second. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so one of, the, one of the ways that, that our, our geologists found uh, outcrops to go to to find carbon to get dates on the recent eruptive activity was to look for sacks of pumice stacked up along the side of the road because that was where uh, folks were mining pumice, and that's where you would be likely to, f to find uh, carbonaceous material at the base of a huge PDC. So, uh, yeah, there was a, you know, the textile industry was, was using the pumice to create the stonewashed jeans, with, which were, of course, quite fashionable in... <laughs> In the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, they were. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so that aside, uh, yeah, we were we were in the dark. It, Pinatubo, uh, geographically, is located not too far from what was Clark Air Base, which at the time was the largest U.S. military installation outside the country. It was on Luzon. Um, that was on the, uh, the east side of the volcano. On the southwest of the volcano was Subic Bay and QB Point Naval Air Station. So Subic Bay uh, Naval Station and an, an air station. Um, and these were military bases, uh, legacy of our involvement in the Philippines since the uh, end of the 19th century. And these uh, got the attention of some of the folks on the base. The meteorologists, which often in, a, in an organization that maybe doesn't have a science focus, the meteorologists are often the scientists. In, uh, that was certainly the case at Clark Air Base, and we were in communication with the, the chief meteorologist there after we'd learned from Fievolks of the, what was happening. And Who's easier to convince, the U.S. Army or the local residents in, in the Philippines? Well... Good question. I mean, the, the locals didn't have any experience with, with volcanic activity. So, uh, and they, you know, as, as a result, I think Fievolks hadn't worked in the area very much, and certainly the USGS had never been there. So there was a fair bit of skepticism on the part of uh, local communities, uh, complicated by the fact that um, in the highlands near the volcano, uh, the in, it was an indigenous group of people, the Aita, uh, who lived up there, different culturally, linguistically than the people who live in the lowlands in, in Pampanga, Tarlac, mm -hmm. and Zambales provinces. And then, so two cultures, two Filipino cultures, and then we have a U.S. military culture. And then you have scientists. <laughs> Scientist culture. <laughs> <laughs> well, culture's a real thing. Yeah. And um, I, I think that as... Uh, I would I would say that the the military folks were more open to data driven sort of objective analysis maybe so three three folks were there we we made use of uh, helicopter support which was absolutely necessary because this is a heavily jungled area very rugged topography and it's almost, imagine Badlands topography, but with jungle on top of it. Sounds kind of fun. It was a... Maybe it, the pilots thought this was fun after well, it was <laughs> being a, on base for a while. It was a, it was a total shoestring operation, ironically yeah. enough. I mean, here we're, we're building up to the second largest eruption of the 20th century. 
and and we're doing it um, really on a shoestring and without a lot of credibility mm-hmm. to, to go on. Uh, that had to be constructed. Now, I mentioned earlier that there's always a social political context of this. Well, at this time, the continued U.S. presence on Clark Air Base and at Subic Bay was, was being negotiated. The bases were coming up for the lease to be renewed. Mm-hmm. And there were plenty of, uh, there was plenty of opposition to maintaining these huge U.S. bases in the, in the Philippines, opposition in, in the Philippines. And so here come these scientists talking about a volcano that no one knew existed really before that just happens to be right between the two military bases. <laughs> and, and everybody's looking at us kind of sideways like, What's your game here, scientists? I mean, are you are you here to are you here to to get a to get a better deal um, for the U.S. on the bases? Or are you here to to you know? No Chase one the bases away. Yeah. Could, everyone yeah. can see it. So giving you the side eye. Strange. So yeah. yeah, there was there was What's a lot. Your end game here. Yeah, there was a lot of that, and 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 so no one trusted us. <laughs> uh, a lot of the military didn't didn't trust us because, well, you know, we're scientists and we look like it and we're, we're kind of walking around in shorts and beards and, and flip-flops when we're on base. And that's definitely not how, how, how folks that are, that are living and working on base look. And different culture. Different culture. Uh, fortunately, Pinatubo provided cues. Okay. This was a, it woke up on April 2nd and our, our time trajectory is from April 2nd to June 15th, so 10 weeks. We had eight at St. Helens. This one was going to be 10. And fortunately, the volcano behaved, we would say, well. It progressed. It, it always sort of ratcheted up. It was, it was always taking things up to the next level as we, as we went through those 10 weeks. And you know, you could see from the base, you could see the steam coming out of the volcano on clear days. That probably when, helps. When the wind was right, you could smell sulfur. Um, so people are like, this is not normal. Something's not happening. Not normal. Something's happening. And then we were able to, uh, with, with a quick photo, uh, air photo interpretation by uh, the director of Fievolks at the time, Ray Punung Bayan, able to combine that, uh, the field work on the ground with the air photos, we came up with a very... Uh, quick and dirty hazard assessment, and that was uh, publicized um, ahead of time, and it was used to talk to the public, Philippine authorities, U.S. military folks. This is what we're looking at here, and we used that with the video that the crafts had produced uh, because we were introducing people to things that they had no experience with. What does it mean to have ash fall on you? Um, what do you mean I can't operate my jet aircraft through the ashfall? Because at the time, there had been a number of instances of civilian 747s, jumbo jets of one description or another, driving through volcanic ash plumes and all their engines stopping. They make really crummy gliders. Fortunately, none of them uh, crashed. Uh, certainly, the Air Force was receptive to that information. Um, but just being able to show them, this is what a lahar looks like. This is what happened to our marrow. This is what a pyroclastic density current look, looks like. This is what happened in Saint-Pierre on Martinique in 1902, or any number of other places that the crafts had video footage for. 
that was tremendously useful in educating people about what are volcano hazards and what is it that they might have to deal with. You know, that was uh, parts of it were broadcast on TV, was used in public meetings, uh, was used in a lot of briefings. So, and there were no punches were pulled in the visuals. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are there are casualties shown as they are found from different phenomena. So that kind of thing doesn't need interpretation. Ultimately, we produced this video. It was done in, uh, in English and French and Spanish. So, you know, there was not a, a Tagalog version for the Philippines. Mm. This was still in, in beta. Were people, were the Ita fairly persuaded by seeing these imagery of other volcanoes? The ones, yeah, certainly. Yeah. And, and combined with suddenly now they're able to see the gas and ash com- coming out of this volcano. The cues were there. We, we're, looking at the, we're looking at the hazard map that we've looked at, and we've been flying around this volcano, and we've been looking at this badlands topography, and we can now pick out, oh, yeah, that's the ignimbrite sheet. Yeah, it comes right down to base, and we're looking at where we are, uh, where we've established our observatory in the middle of the base, and we're saying we're not comfortable here. Um, that was another cue. This, this time from the scientists that, well, the scientists are in the middle of the base and they're not comfortable there. They're moving to the other, the other end as far away as they can be. This sent a powerful message. Um, well, the scientists are scared. This, this, this sent a powerful message to, to the command of, of Clark Air Base that, yeah. And, and so on the 10th, they, they, they did the, the kind of wholesale evacuation. And you know, we're on the base, and it's it's basically, it's this town. Uh, it's a U.S. town in the middle of the Philippines because there's there's over 15,000 people, uh, servicemen, women, families, living there. They have schools. They have a 200-bed hospital. They have, you know, all these things. And and as the command was was coming to terms with their situation, they began to think, oh, well, we've got all these critical care people in the hospital. We've got a lot of uh, women who are late-term pregnancy. We've got to start, if we try to do all of this in one day, it's not going to work. It's, yeah. You can't do it in one big bite. So they, they got smart and they started thinking, all right, let's, you know, let, let's get important property that's transportable off the base, you know, aircraft, all the stuff you have laying around a military base that you don't want to have destroyed. Um, they started moving that out. They started, you know, basically stopping new people from coming in and and trying to get ahead of it. They they had seen the the video of of volcano hazards and they, we had been telling them that look, lahars are probably going to be a thing as soon as this volcano gets going. So if we're evacuating rapidly let's not try to cross a route that has a lot of bridges on it. And so they mm. wisely came up with a plan that took us, that, that took people who would still be on the base directly east, not having to cross any of the drainages that headed on, on the volcano to a, uh, ironically, they'd chosen a site at uh, an extinct volcano in the middle of Pampanga <laughs> called Mount Ariat. <laughs> How do you move people that, you know, don't have this military logistics chain and and command structure that are civilians and don't and aren't organized like they aren't a fifteen thousand person well, yeah, village that's exactly. organized like this. Yeah, that's that's perfect point. I will probably never ever be in a place where when an evacuation is called and the, and it is ordered, it is carried out. 
you know, everybody's <laughs> like, yeah, we're, we're doing this. We have to go. Other, for the people who weren't part of the, that U.S. military culture, installation, whatnot, the uh, local folks in Angeles City and San Fernando and the surrounding areas, they had to be convinced. And the volcano ultimately uh, was the thing that convinced them. When we started getting these large subplanian eruptions, then it was like, oh yeah, I can't ignore that cloud that's 80,000 feet above the volcano. <laughs> Friday, the 14th of uh, September, we're getting eruptions, small, ish explosive eruptions every few hours and it it looks like it's progressing to um <laughs> to the climax of the show <laughs> um and at the same time the meteorologists remember the meteorologists they were the ones who who first really tuned a lot of folks into what was going on they're saying, yeah, there's a typhoon that looks like it's going to come ashore on Saturday. And, uh, Plot twist. Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. So, so on, on Saturday, Typhoon Yunya is forecast to track 50 kilometers north of Pinatubo. It's going to come on shore from, from the uh, east-southeast. And so the last time we see the volcano is at dawn on Saturday morning. I'll never forget being awakened at uh, 5.55 in the morning of get up, the volcano's erupted, we're bugging out, you know, that sort of awakening after not having slept for a number of days and then maybe having three three hours and kind of getting shot out of that cannon. Anyway, we get outside and we look and the entire horizon is full of, of uh, an ash column and you can see PDCs moving out from from the volcano. They look like um, uh, low gray clouds that are just moving across the landscape. The eruption went continuous at about 1.40 in the afternoon and uh, we started getting a Plinian airfall where we had pumice about the size of golf balls or bigger that were coming down outside and it was very difficult to see. When you're in a when you're in a heavy ash fall, all the light is gone, and it, it can be, it's, it's, scary. it's not just dark, it's scary dark, I mean, because the, the air is full of dust, ash, and, um, and did, did I tell you about the typhoon? Yeah. yeah so what happened okay, so, so, so the typhoon's <laughs> tracking onshore. We can't see the volcano because of the rain and the wind and then the ash fall that, that's coming down. It's, it's made things uh, quite dramatic. You told me, yeah, you're, you're going to go to the Philippines and you're going to be in one of the largest eruptions of the 20th century on the same day that a typhoon is going to track overhead. I'd say, no. <laughs> no, that's, that's totally Hollywood and that's not going to happen because stuff like that doesn't happen. It happened. Sometimes the worst case does happen. And in this case, it was the typhoon with with the volcanic eruption. Anyway, uh, the, the eruption got going continuously. We decided that there was nothing more we could do. Our instruments were being taken out by the eruptive activity. We called it quits, and we said, let's get out of here. And so we did. And we left in a hurry. You know, we're, we're driving at a at the breakneck speed of about two miles an hour, looking over our shoulders to see if there's going to be a, a PDC coming up on our on our tail and we get out 
on the road to drive to the evacuation site. And the road is full of people. It's full of people on foot, people on bicycles, people with their carabao, their water buffalo. It's, it's, a, it's a quarter million people moving away from the volcano in the, in the ashfall, in the typhoon. And that is an experience. And, and on, on the practical side, you quickly run out of windshield washer fluid. <laughs> and as your, as your uh, windscreen, we were three of us in a pickup truck, uh, becomes coated with mud and, and pumice, ash. You can't see, and the windshield wipers won't clear it. Um, you know, we had cases of orange and grape soda in the back of the truck, and we end up pouring that on the windscreen to, to, get, to get the mud off. Anyway, we made our way for, for uh, several miles out to the evacuation site. And I'll never forget being there in this agricultural school uh, on the second floor of a building with a kind of a sprung concrete floor that was very responsive to uh, earthquake activity. And we're out there a couple hours after we evacuated from the basin. And as the caldera is forming, as the, as the ground is, is subsiding in about a mile diameter chunk, there are magnitude five earthquakes that are happening. And these are very shallow and they were feeling them very strongly. And I'll never forget being in that building and sitting with a, with a textbook of volcanology with, uh, with Rick Hoblet. And we're looking at, at the runout curves of how far pyroclastic density currents have gone in, in other uh, eruptions in the past. And we're kind of plotting that with where our position is and thinking, right, we're probably okay. But with some big eruptions, we might not be. But there's nothing we can do. Uh, the roads are impassable. Uh, we're as far away as we can be. We're all really tired. And so we go to sleep. <laughs> Rocked to sleep by, by earthquakes that are coming through every few minutes as the caldera is forming 37 kilometers to our west. That is a rich life experience. What were you thinking the whole time on that drive out there? Yeah, a lot of things were said. <laughs> Uh, it was with two people who are, are uh, very close friends. You're just doing what you can and hope that to, to, to try to fix your situation. And it's, uh, it's a little bit like, like, a, like being in a dream where you're being chased and you can't quite get away from the thing that's after you. That's that's time. that's you're that's like, the feeling. That's that's what it feels like. Yeah, where you're like trying to run and you're going really slow. Right. Yeah. Yep. Right. <laughs> yeah. But literally, look, looking behind to see as if you could see because it was dark and it was raining and it was the, the, the typhoon with the plenty of ashfall. Um, so yeah, it was. Uh, did it? Don't need to do it again. <laughs> Sounds like the response was a success, though. Well, More yes, uh, it demonstrated the. Um, the utility, the practicality of having a rapid response team and a cache of instrumentation available to respond mm -hmm. to a developing situation. So it was a, you know, it was a gamble, I guess you'd say, to to fund, uh, you know, a bunch of scientists that, you know, with a, with a princely amount of money of, I think we started with a two hundred thousand dollars a year, 
uh, for for you know half a dozen people and try to get an instrument cache up and going. It was uh, it was the largest evacuation in response to a volcanic event to date. There were well over twenty thousand people who were evacuated from areas of where they would have it was certain death. It was on the order of half billion dollars of things and stuff that were taken out of the way before the eruption, and a lot of lives saved. So it was, you know, really a, a remarkable success. There was a, there was a death toll. There were there were more than three hundred on the day. Afterwards, there were actually more people who died in in the uh, displaced persons camps, uh-huh. and mainly from stupid stuff, disease, gastrointestinal distress, measles, mm-hmm. oh, wow. stuff like that. Just because you had people housed in a monsoon in tents, yeah. just awful, you know, in the heat, just awful situation to be displaced in. Maurice and Katia Kraft, who made the the video that we we had the the beta version of, it hadn't even been formally released. They were at Unzen in Japan, and on June fourth or fifth, they got caught in a PDC with 41 other people, and they died. And their, but their video was that they'd made was a was a tremendous boon to us in our situation but it was it was hard because we you know the community is small and we everybody knew Maurice and Katia uh, at least by acquaintance you know explaining to to folks that you know look that video you've been watching the people that produced that they just lost their lives in in a PDC in Japan that that hits that hits people hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it really brings it home. It was uh, it was it was an important event for the community, just as the Ruiz event was an important event, just as the St. Helens event mm-hmm. was important. And that and that's the nature of volcanology is that we learn the most from the volcanoes that are that are erupting and are doing the big bad things. So they figured it out. They got the volcanoes solved. Volcanoes solved. <laughs> solved. Yeah, sort of. I mean, well, 300 people did die, mm-hmm. although they evacuated, I think, 20,000. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and the people that died mostly died from some of these crazy added effects for the surprise tef- typhoon that came through. And that soaked all of this ash that was falling on their houses, right? And it was so heavy on top of their roofs. Their roofs aren't made for that. Maybe they're made for wind, but not for... For weight, um, but yeah, they they were successful in in removing all these people from the path of volcano. It's kind of a success. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and John was actually telling us in a way it was uh, similar to Mount St. Helens in that St. Helens was they were kind of lucky too that there weren't very many people who died. And they say that actually Pinatubo they realized after this eruption that they were lucky in that this was actually not one of the larger eruptions that Pinatubo has had over the years. You know, they thought what they were looking at. The la- their assessment they were basing it on was just looking at the remnants of a smaller eruption that happened. But if it had gone on like eruptions that had happened 3,000 or 5,000 years ago, the entire area of Clark Air Base and the much broader area around that would have been totally overrun with t- pyroclastic density flows. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. So how many how many eruptions has um, his group like this volcano disaster assistance program actually responded to? Yeah, more than 30, I think. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Um, all of them different, of course, different cultural situation. One of the things that you kind of see is this theme when you talk to him about the many volcanoes he's been to is that sometimes it's the people that are the biggest problem. Mm. Yeah. Um, especially if you have any kind of political turmoil going on and you're not sure who's who's in charge. Right. I mean, the science can be one thing. You know the science, but but it's dealing with, with people, with humans and right. human nature and different feelings. And You throw in issues. the unpredictability of a yeah. volcano. Um, and so when they started, a lot of their focus was just getting the equipment out there, getting some information about what's happening because they didn't have this worldwide monitoring that we have now. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that we do have a lot more information from around the world, a lot of times they're just acting as consultants, he says. Um, they're bringing people together disaster managers or just city planners, firefighters, first responders from different parts of the world to talk with each other because he says, you know, even if they don't speak the same language, they speak the same jargon. <laughs> they, <laughs> you know, firefighters. Like pyroclastic and, density flow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, like they're worried about the same kinds of problems and so they understand each other. So sometimes taking the scientist out of the conversation actually helps. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's at the end of the day, though, it's probably good that they're there. But yeah, it's good that they're there to help people understand what's going to happen and where the volcano's going to go if we can figure it out. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much to Liza and Lauren for bringing us this story and, of course, to John for sharing his work with us. Uh, The podcast was produced by Liza and Lauren and mixed by Robin Murray and John Schreiner. We would love to hear your thoughts on our podcast. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Um, Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Um, And, of course, always at thirdpodfromthesun.com. And be on the lookout for more Centennial episodes to come. As well as our regular episodes. Thanks all, and we'll see you next time.